Well, hey, good morning. It is Christmas time. Christmas time is here. Happiness and cheer, if you know that song. And I love Christmas time. I'm not as truly a uh, very sentimental person, but I love Christmas time. And one of the things that I love about Christmas is that it truly kind of brings out the best uh, in our society and the best in people. Uh, perhaps you hear or heard the stories of people having things on layaway. You know, they couldn't afford them. And um, then some church or some person comes and pays off uh, all the layaway or some of the layaways, and so they're able to get those gifts relatively uh, cheap or for free. Um, Also, around this time of year, tips are on average 45%. Uh, 40 to 45% higher, I guess that would be 45% uh, higher uh, than they are other times of the year. And uh, there's truly uh, an incredible increase in charitable giving. And you see such great response to things like angel trees and toys for tots. And most organizations experience uh, an increase uh, as well. And then, of course, there's just sweet time with family uh, and uh, gifts. You know, you get to give gifts and receive gifts and uh, eat your family's food. Uh, So it's a great time of year, and it does bring out some of the best in people, but also uh, it brings out some of the worst in people. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with the shopping fights that typically happen uh, at Black Friday and other sales uh, in places like Walmart and other department stores. Um, On average, uh, people go into uh, $1,800 of debt. Uh, to be able to provide gifts uh, for uh, their families. And then uh, not as much anymore, but certainly throughout my lifetime, there has been the war on Christmas or war on Xmas, which is really more of a cultural fight than it is a spiritual fight. And then for some people, family and getting together with family isn't necessarily uh, a great thing. And if you've been alive for a while, then you have seen a shift that has taken place when it comes to how we as a culture approach Christmas, which is really just a microcosm of how our culture has shifted across the board. And just like all things, much, is, much of the shift that has taken place in our attitudes and our approach towards Christmas is based upon how much we focus on the Christ that is in Christmas and who Christ is. And so today what I want to do is I want to draw our attention to that idea and I want to talk about a theological word. And that word is Christology, Christology. Christology is, or as Christology, as one of my Bible college professors would say, it's the study of Christ. To examine Christology is to examine who Christ is. So who is Christ? This is a question that people have wrestled with for thousands of years. It's something that has defined Jesus' disciples over that time. And so let's go back to when Jesus was walking the earth and the importance of this question then. If you have a Bible, you can open up to the second book of the New Testament and the gospel of Mark. And we're gonna read just Mark chapter eight, verse 27 through verse 30 this morning. As you're finding your place there, I wanna remind you that on Christmas Eve, that's Friday, December 24th, we will be getting together uh, to celebrate Christmas and we'll have some great music. 
uh, a message of reflection on uh, Christ and, and Christmas and uh, uh, candlelight and communion. We'll have three services, 4 o'clock, 5.15, and 6.30 that evening. 4 o'clock, we'll uh, have a nursery available for uh, preschool-aged children. Also, I want to say to you, if you're visiting with us today, you're watching online for the first time, that we are incredibly, to ha- incredibly grateful to have you as our guest, and we would love to know you. So I would encourage you to stop by one of the welcome tables on your way out if you're here with us uh, this morning, or if you're watching online or feel more comfortable, you can text the word CONNECT. Uh, to the number uh, that's going to be on the screen and one of our team members will follow up with you. Let's read Mark chapter eight, verse 27 through 30. It says, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And he told them, and they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. At this time, the news about Jesus was beginning to be pretty widespread. And there were a lot of things being said about who Jesus was. I want to quickly glance at each of these responses that the disciples give regarding who people were saying that Jesus was. Some were saying that he was John the Baptist. John the Baptist had a ministry that immediately preceded Jesus. John the Baptist was killed, and so many were saying that John the Baptist had come back from the dead. Uh, Herod, who had John the Baptist killed, was actually very fearful of who Jesus might be, that he was actually John the Baptist risen from the grave, and he probably led to the popularity of that thought. Others said that he was Elijah. In Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, it says that I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And so many had taken that to mean that Elijah was going to come back uh, before Uh, the Messiah would come. And so some were saying Jesus was Elijah. And then others said that he was one of the prophets. If you read through the Old Testament, the prophets uh, pronounced judgment. They pronounced the need for repentance and they were persecuted. And so Jesus uh, really mirrored the prophets to them that he proclaimed and talked about judgment, talked about the need for repentance and that he was experiencing persecution. So there are all these different reasons or different things that people thought Jesus was. And, and you can look through history and you can see that. And we need to take note that Jesus is a historical person. Jesus is not a myth. The existence of Jesus is not a myth. In addition to all the things the Bible testifies about Jesus, outside of the Bible, there are many who reference the existence of Jesus. Tacitus, who was a Roman historian and senator, uh, talked about in one of his writings that Jesus died by the hands of Pontius Pilate. And he also writes about the superstition of Christians about the resurrection. Pliny the Younger, in his letter to the Emperor Trajan, said that they, Christians, sing to Christ as is he is God. And Josephus, a Jewish historian, writes about Jesus as well. And I could go on and on with all the extra biblical evidence and references to the existence of Jesus, but my point is that it's kind of silly to dismiss the fact that Jesus existed. But people had different beliefs about who he was, and Many people today have different answers for who he is. Some would say that Jesus is a prophet. The religion of Islam and others, that's what they believe Jesus to have been, is a prophet. 
Some have said that Jesus was a great and significant moral teacher. That's what Gandhi believed about Jesus and many people who are adherents to a more new age uh, religion or new age philosophy believe that about Jesus. And some, along with the Jewish community, believe that Jesus was a heretic. But Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ. Matthew records in his gospel that Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So something that might need to be clarified for you this morning, and certainly needs to be clarified for a lot of people who probably aren't listening to a sermon on a Sunday morning, is this. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is not a family name or a surname. I mean, he wasn't introducing himself as, yes, I'm Jesus our Christ. Like, that's not who he was. Christ is a title. It was a title. It meant anointed one. It meant Messiah. In the Old Testament, there was the depiction of a savior who would come, one who was anointed to deliver God's people. And that's what Christ meant, that he was indeed the fulfillment of that. And Peter says, the son of the living God. The Psalms talked about a living God and his son, David's offspring. And Peter is saying, that is who you are, Jesus. Now, it's important to note that this interaction takes place in the region of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is believed to have within its borders the cavern in which the Greek god of nature, Pan, was born and came out of. And, and there are several places that many historians believe may have been uh, that cavern. And I actually have a picture to show you of uh, the most popular location where many people believe was the cavern uh, that Pan came out of uh, and, you know, essentially was the Greek god, Greek god of nature. And this region was actually originally named Panias after the Greek god Pan. And then under the influence of Julius Caesar and the Roman rule, it was renamed to Caesarea. And then Herod Philip attached his name to it as well, and it became Caesarea Philippi. In addition to many significant places devoted to the Greek god of Pan, where it was also a marble temple built for worshipers of Caesar. And so this region was full of Baal worshipers, the god of ancient times to believe, believed to be sometimes associated with the god of the dead, Pan, and Caesar worshipers. And there were many idols throughout Caesarea Philippi. And Peter says, you're the son of the living God. Caesar is dead. Baal is dead. Pan is dead. These idols do not have life, but our God is alive, and you are the son of the living God who is accomplishing his purpose. And so Peter was saying in his confession that Jesus is the son of God who has come to save his people and build his kingdom. When Peter says, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God, he was saying that Jesus is the son of God who has come to save his people and build his kingdom. Now you have to decide whether or not Peter was right. You have to decide whether or not this is true. The Bible would be recorded and written down 
by the disciples, by the apostles, or close associates of those disciples and apostles. It would be widely accepted and it would be widely circulated at a very rapid pace, unlike no other historical book that has ever existed and certainly no other collection of letters that has existed. And then, under Emperor Diocletius, there would be what is called the Edict of Diocletian, which would say that anyone who held on to Christian books would be killed. And so what we have in the New Testament, people said, will die before we let these letters and these books be burned. And the disciples who wrote down these things and recorded these things and God used to build his church, for them almost 100% of the time, their fate ended in death at the hands of persecution. So it is clear that they were convinced. It is clear that the early church was convinced. And it is clear that people have been convicted that the word of God is true, that Jesus is the Christ, and that they have devoted their entire life to this. But who do you say that Jesus is? Perhaps in this room or watching online, you might not consider yourself a religious person. You might not really consider yourself a believer. You're full of a family of believers, so you come to church regularly, but you're not a believer. Maybe you're here with a friend, and you've never taken this that seriously. But also, perhaps you're a person who is here somewhat regularly, who is somewhat dialed into church, but you're really not sold out. You really reject the idea of a lordship, of surrender to God and of true worship to God. But I want you to realize something. Whether you acknowledge this or not, whether you say this or not, the question is not will you worship, but who or what will you worship? The question in your life is not whether you will worship, but who or what will you worship? There is something that you are saying is above all other things. You are saying, this is my master. I will surrender to this. I will sacrifice all other things to this. It might be money and what money can give you or what money can give you. It might be family. It might be an image that you want or a person who you want to be like. Or it might be the idea of freedom. And you might be thinking, I don't worship Money, family, and image, and freedom. I don't stand and sing to money, family, or an image, or freedom. But who is it that you obey? All others. Who do you sacrifice all other things for? What do you think about and meditate on on a regular basis? What is your validation? What is it that you think will bring you worth? Maybe even what you think redeems you and saves you. And also a lot of people sing about money, family, and image, and freedom. Now Christians have decided it's Jesus. My life is in the hands of Jesus. That is why I sing to him. That is why I sacrifice to him. That is why I serve him. That is why I learn his word. And that is why I pray and seek his will. And if you are a Christian, then you want to know what he wants for you. And you want to know who he is. And he wants you to know who he is, and he doesn't want you to know a twisted version of him. God wants to be worshiped for who he is, 
God wants to be worshipped for who he is, not something we make him up to be. Every time in Christmas season, I think of a lot of different movies. But one of the movies I think about every Christmas season is the movie Talladega Nights. Not because it's a Christmas movie, and as your pastor, I don't encourage you to go and watch Talladega Nights, but because of a scene in that movie where Ricky Bobby, Will Ferrell's character, is praying, and he prays to baby Jesus. And the crowd at his dinner table reminds him, Jesus isn't a baby anymore. And he says, I like the Christmas Jesus best when I'm saying grace. When you say grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus or whoever you want. He says, this is who I like Jesus to be. And I think many people have an image that they want Jesus to be for their own desires in their lives. And we're really making up who he is. Suppose that you rang your doorbell. And you answered it and discovered that there is a famous person there. Maybe they came with somebody else you invited. And, and it was Elon Musk. And he's arguably, or depending on the day, the wealthiest person in the world. And you may or may not, you know, be that impressed with a lot of things about him. But he's got a lot of money. And so you swing the door wide open. And you give him the best seat in your house. And you serve him on your best china. And generally, you know, you just make a big deal about it. And then you discover... This is an Elon Musk. And he wonders, why are you making such a big deal out of me? And you said, oh, I thought you were Elon Musk. Now, what have you done to your guest? You've belittled him. You thought that he was somebody else, and that's why you honored him. He thought your honor was for him, but it was really for someone you thought he was. You didn't really recognize who he really was. In order to receive Christ in a way that honors him, in a way that saves us, we must recognize him for who he really is. Yes, our understanding of who Christ is grows over time, but it's him. We must see his glory, and we must agree in our hearts that he is indeed worthy of all of our trust and our obedience. We not, must not worship someone we wish he was or think for him to be. I've recently been engaged in an ongoing conversation with someone of the Mormon faith about, you know, the differences between what I believe and what they believe, them believing me to be wrong and deceived and me knowing that they are deceived. And I didn't mean that to be funny. I'm sorry. I meant that in love. And we've had a lot of conversations about different aspects of how I believe that they are deceived, but ultimately what I'm trying to point them back to and what I believe is the greatest issue is that they don't believe fully who Jesus said he was in the New Testament. So they are worshiping a different version of Jesus and they're not really looking to who Jesus said he was in some clear ways. I've, over the course of my life, had the opportunity to have ongoing relationships and friendships with people who are Jehovah's Witnesses. And once again, sadly and 
heartbreakingly, they're deceived about who Jesus is. And I would say that in addition to those more clear examples, any person who's sitting here this morning, who's listening to my voice this morning that claims to love Jesus but doesn't agree with what Jesus said about himself is not worshiping Jesus. You're honoring him for who you want him to be, not for who's really with you. And so I quickly want to give you seven aspects about Jesus that are important for your worship. I, you could call this Christology 101. And these things are throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, and you can search them out, you can Google these words, whatever you want to do. For sake of time, I'm just going to say them very quickly. Here are seven things about Jesus. Number one, he eternally existed. Jesus was not God's plan B that he created because we messed up the plan. Jesus has always been with the Father. And Colossians actually says that all things were made for him and by him and through him. Jesus has always existed. The, what we see in Jesus is the very character of God that has always existed. Secondly, Jesus was born of a virgin. This is talked about in the Old Testament and it is declared plainly and clearly in the New Testament, Jesus was born of a virgin. He was not born of the seed of Adam like we were. Number three is Jesus was fully man. When he was on this earth, he was fully man. The scripture says that he's tempted in our likeness. Now, he does not have the seed of Adam and the same nature fully that we see and we have but he was fully man and he grew in his understanding of who he was, humbling himself to become in the flesh, God with us. Number four is he's fully God. He was at the same time that he was fully man, fully God. Now this is hard for our minds to be wrap, to wrap around and in fact, one of uh, Jehovah's Witnesses uh, said one time that, hey, that's a much bigger God than I could ever comprehend. And I said, amen. You're right. One of the reasons we err in understanding with Christ and God is we begin to say, if I can't fully explain it and my awesomeness, then it can't be true. God is far superior to our understanding. He was fully God and fully man. Number five, the atonement for sins on the cross. On the cross was not just a death and not just a sacrifice and not just love, but it was the wrath of God poured out on the perfect sacrifice. My sin nailed him there. And believers understand that our righteousness only comes through him who he made sin, who was no sin. Number six, he rose from the grave. He's the living God the son of the living God, death could not hold him. And he rose again. And there were witnesses, 500 witnesses written around the time of Corinthians who could have easily said, no, we didn't see this, but many people knew that they said that. The half-brother of Jesus, James, changed his mind about Jesus because he saw Jesus alive. And number seven, Jesus ascended to the throne for eternity. He came from the Father, and he is back at the right hand of the Father, and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ. And, G and Peter, excuse me, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16, verse 17, that Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, 
For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. When Peter confessed that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the son of the living God, he's acknowledging all the Old Testament said about God existing for eternity and him being born promised to a virgin and him being fully man and him being fully God and him atoning for the sins of the people and the resurrection to come and the, the, the fact that he would live forever and that he would be on the throne. And this is all logical. The investigation of the historical Jesus and the witnesses of Jesus, you can make a strong log logical case to explain all this to be true, but to confess that Jesus is a Christ is also spiritual. We must seek God and our eyes must be opened by him. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 tells us that we reject the cross in our worldly way of thinking because we are looking for the cross to give us something and for our boasting and yet the cross and God doing that for our righteousness is really foolish in that way of thinking. It doesn't just come from study and investigation. It comes from humility. It comes from realization. It comes from desperation. You see, we need our eyes to be open to who God is. We need God's help to see who he is. Romans 12 really talks about worship and it, the life of worship, and it says, don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's what God is doing in us. And God's plan to take humble, desperate people whose eyes have been opened is incredible. Jesus goes on to say, Matthew records in verse 18 of chapter 16, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I want you to think again about where they were. They were in Caesarea Philippi. They were right by or at least near what was considered the gates of hell. Where Pan came, where, where people were scared to go because they believed that it led to hell. And, and we'll get into Jesus saying, you are on this rock, I will build my church. But many people even believe that Jesus is saying this near this rock to explain the power of God over the gates of hell. Now listen, I don't know what you know about war, but I can tell you this, gates don't attack. Jesus says to Peter, God has opened your eyes to who I am and I'm gonna build my church through you and the gates of hell cannot stand against it. Jesus says, I will give you the keys to the kingdom. I am empowering you with the Holy Spirit to advance the message of who I am. I am empowering you to push back the power of hell and rescue captives. He says, I am inviting you not just to be saved and enter my kingdom, but to build my kingdom. I am inviting you to get off of the bench and get into the game that really counts in life. And I'm telling you to have the confidence as you do this, believer, he says, I am giving you the power of the kingdom. I am giving you the power that the broken pieces of your life can be brought together to form a beautiful picture with shards of glass to remind you of where you come from, but in the shape of the cross to remind you also more importantly where you are headed. That the ruins of destruction of your hopes and dreams for your family can be rebuilt into a strong tower where others find refuge as well. The curses that have plagued the generations of your family 
You have the power for a new legacy to be formed where your last name is now synonymous with the name of Jesus Christ. The addictions that have weighed you down, they can be lifted and you can run the race that is set before you with joy. The things that have been spoken over you about your worthlessness can be tossed aside at the declaration of the king who has given you and trusted you with the keys of the kingdom. And the voices in your head of defeat and failure can be drowned out by the voices of Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, who says the gates of hell will not prevail against what I'm going to do through you. You see, this isn't because you've reached some level of understanding or performance or morality. You don't have a power that is given to you by flesh and blood. You have a power that is from our Father in heaven. You have a power that is given to you because you know who Jesus Christ is. He is the Christ, he is the Messiah King, and you have surrendered to him. And he will then have his way in and through you. Christology is a recognition. He is the Christ. He is the King. And what I need and what this world needs is him. I said I love Christmas time, and I do. And one of the things I love the most about Christmas time is the music. I don't believe you should sing it before Thanksgiving, but we'll get into that another time. But I love it. For about a month, five weeks, whatever it is, I love it. And I love all the wordy ones, you know, oh, come all you faithful. I love a holy night. But there's one that some people make fun of, but it's one of my top songs, if not my top song. I love it because the simplicity of the song, it's the little drummer boy. And I don't know what happened, but one night I was listening to it and never fully connected with me. Just the message of the gospel in the song, The Little Drummer Boy. You have this boy and he doesn't have frankincense or gold or myrrh, but he recognizes who Jesus is. And he says, I have no gift that is fit for a king but I can play this drum. That's how I feel. I don't have anything that is fit for a king. But here's what I have. And Jesus says, come. That's what God wants from you. He doesn't need you to be great. He needs you to recognize how great he is and offer him up what you have. Let's respond to him now. God, I thank you for the greatness that is in, on display in Christ eternally that was clearly revealed when you are on this earth through your life, through your death, and your resurrection. Lord, maybe today somebody just needs to come to you, believing that, committing their life for you. And maybe believers today, we just need to be reminded the power that has been given to us through Jesus the King. In his name I pray.